Thanks so much for joining us here on The Clark Howard Show, where we're here for your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. And you can follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Coming up later, when you buy a cell phone, it's big money now if you've got one of the latest, greatest. So should you buy the insurance that's being pitched to you? The answer, coming up. I'm going to talk right now about an opportunity for you to run your own side business or even full business. And it is something that has really started to catch on. And that is using social media as the way to sell. Namely, and specifically, Instagram has become a very popular way to run your own side business where you reach your customers that way. My wife um, found a store and we were, we were in France and found a store on Instagram that was a used clothing store for designer labels, items that often were not sold in the United States. And she found her way there because of Instagram and got a bunch of things that she just loves. What they cost used, I don't get to know. We have a don't ask, don't tell. But they were all used items. And Joel, you have personal experience with people that are earning a living from running businesses on Instagram. How? What kind of businesses? How is it working? Yeah, I've got one friend who kind of has a side Instagram business and she buys things at thrift stores, vintage pieces, and then lists them on Instagram to sell. And so she'll have like a flash sale at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday night and list 20 items in a row and people will claim them. Whoever's first to claim it gets, gets uh, the item. So she's picking them up with her own two feet and her arms and going to these stores. She's then got... Um, delivery costs to the people she sells to on Instagram. She's able to mark them up enough, ship them off to them, and still make a profit. She charges you the exact amount of the shipping too. So she asks you what your zip code is right after you claim the item, and she gives you a quote for exactly what shipping is going to cost on top of the price of the item. So. And so she's not shopping these stores for wardrobe for herself. These are, these are really items she's buying as a merchant. Yep, exactly. And it's mostly, you know, thrift store vintage finds that she gets that she probably finds for a dollar or two and then can mark up to ten, twelve, twenty dollars. Wow. Yeah, and, and then I've got another buddy who runs a vintage furniture uh, shop on Instagram. Pretty much all of his sales come through Instagram, and that's where he finds clients. He's able to use hashtags and the way that he markets his company. It's pretty much 100% through Instagram, and that's where his sales come from. That, that's really fascinating to me that this has become a thing because Bloomberg was talking recently in one of its stories about how Instagram has become a new merchant outlet directly challenging eBay. And the point is, there is no one business model online that works. When you find what connects you to your potential customer base, run with it. And it can be more than one outlet. You know, a lot of people who sell items on eBay also sell on Amazon's marketplace or vice versa. That 
uh, that whatever outlet works best for you, that's what you want to do and generate the revenue you're looking to make. Barbara's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Barbara. Hi, Clark. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. You got a question about your kids. I do. Um, My daughter's uh, social security number was stolen out of a car. A hospital worker took the um, information home. Wait, 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 wait. A hospital worker broke into your car? No, no. A hospital worker took her information home. Oh. And someone broke into their car because they left it in their car overnight. And oh. they broke in in the middle of the night and stole the information. And were they actually stealing a laptop that had your daughter's and other people's information on it? Or was it... Well, yeah, this has happened twice. The first time was when she was first born in the hospital and um, the, they were just files. And this time it was um, on a computer that somebody took home. And how many people's records did they get besides just your daughter? Do you have a sense of that? Um, Yeah, apparently they got quite a few. Um, You know, the first time it happened, I remember calling the um, credit companies trying to do something about it. And at the time, that's been, you know, almost 16 years ago, so they wouldn't do anything really uh, about it. They offered me the year credit monitoring, and then I had to go and pay for it myself afterwards. So far, nothing's come up, but I'm just curious, how do you check out their credit report before they reply for financial aid? Great question. So now in roughly half the nation's states, you can set up what's known as a child credit freeze. And what state do you live in? Oregon. Oregon is one of the states that has child credit freeze. So what it allows you to do is that you as a parent can create, because many times a kid won't even have a credit file, but the credit bureau will essentially create one for your minor child, and then we'll we'll see if any activities happen, they'll let you know, and then you can freeze it, lock it down, until they get to an age that maybe they're applying for college financial aid, and then you thaw that report. Okay, well, she's 16, and so uh, starting this fall, we're going to be applying for financial aid. So that and makes so, it that makes it a rough call because <laughs> yeah. if the information is now floating around and somebody might want to pretend to be her, it could hit right smack in the middle of her attempting to apply for college and potential mm-hmm. financial aid. And then, you know, we've had these terrible stories where people can't go to college yet. They have to wait a, a semester or a year till they can get the problems with their credit file cleaned up. So at 16, it might actually be worth it to go ahead and put the freeze in place. And then when it comes time to applying for financial aid, which would actually be two years from now? Um, No, actually, it would be this fall. They're wanting them to start. um, Oh, with the FAFSA this fall. Correct. Wow, this this is tough. I... Maybe maybe you wait till after she's done her FAFSA and then freeze the credit. And then when it's time that a school actually needs to check her credit for financial aid, then you thaw it again. 
Yeah, I'm just wondering if something is on there and someone is using it. I mean, I don't even know what to do. Well, that's why the credit-free stuff for kids is what you should do. Why don't you go look at my guide at Clark.com, see if you want to proceed mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. can put the worry aside and know that no bad stuff is going on and prevent bad stuff from happening except when it's thawed for the financial aid applications. Okay, so there's no way to get on somewhere and check to see if there is not using her credit. There is okay. not. You know, the credit bureaus don't have any interest in that. And yeah. so that's why it all the work is on your shoulders. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Sure, and um, nothing happened, as you know, from the first breach, right? From the first breach, no. Um, after the, I got the first free year of credit monitoring, and then the second and third, I didn't see anything, so we stopped doing that. And so I haven't seen anything, you know, coming to the house or anything, but that doesn't mean that someone didn't steal it. Right. Well, let's hope you find nothing bad at all. And this is just a false alarm. James joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, James. Hey, Clark. How are we doing today? Great, thank you. You had an experience with house flipping that worked out really well for you, right? Yeah, first-time flippers. Bought a house over here in southwest Ohio for about fifty grand. put 15 in it, and sold it for 99 Good for and, you. And we're going to net $27,000, we will say, out of it. And my question is... Wait, 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 wait. you got to give more background so you have more context for your fellow listener. So you buy this house for fifty grand. The work you did to the house, the 15000 and work you did to it? Correct. Can you do your own repairs to a house? Did you do the improvements yourself? Or was Most that fifteen grand for contractors? No, no. The only thing, I mean, as my dad always said, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. The only person we paid was really my son-in-law, who uh, works for a heating and air conditioning company in, in Indiana. And I just paid for him and his main install guy to come down to uh, our area, and they put it in. But other than that, it was really just the wife and I. So that, the reason, reason I wanted to ask you that stuff to draw context out is that there's all these road shows talking about how you're going to get rich flipping houses. And the reality is... To be successful at it, you have to identify properties that that look really sad, and you have to be able and willing to do the work yourself to improve the house, because I'll tell you, if you had had to hire contractors to do the work, there wouldn't have been no, 27, there, there might not have been any profit. Correct. Yeah, I mean, it's a house, it's, I drive by it every day going to work. It was a small house, a two-bedroom, one-bath, full basement, but it sat on an acre and a half with the woods of creek and an in-ground pool. So I know with the pool, you're you're eliminating a lot of your potential buyers right there, but it was more cosmetic. I mean, it was just old and tired. It was built in 1953. You know, I had to redo some walls, but plumbing, for the most part, had to fix a little here, a little there. Same with electric, but no real major projects other than the, uh, the HVAC. So you, if you could keep identifying properties like this, you could end up just doing this and make a r- real nice living just from buying, fixing up, beating up places, and then either renting them out or selling them. Yeah, that, that was one of our questions. Was uh, I mean, it's too late now. It's sold in less than two days, and, uh, which is good. 
uh, we kind of debated renting it, but with the pool, we were kind of worried with liabilities there. And uh, I mean, we're happy. I mean, great. So what's happy. what's Act Two? Take a small break. Okay. But, but I mean, no, we want to do it again, and it really was location. I mean, we're not in in the most desirable town, we'll say, but for that town, is a very desirable part of the town. Wonderful. With the yeah, my main question is. How can we? I don't mean hide the money. Don't want, don't want to do that. But what can I roll it into, or do I just have to flat claim it as capital gain? Yeah, you with the money. If you were not going to claim it as taxable, there's a whole complicated procedure you have to get into with an exchange known okay. as a 1035. Very, very involved. And you've sold the place. You've made the money. You're going to have to pay the tax. Okay. Yeah, and then the it, money left after tax, I would stash it in ready, uh, readily available cash in one of those online savings accounts till okay. you identify your next opportunity and you're ready to pounce on that. Sounds good. Yeah, because we're thinking, you know, long-term versus short-term. And what I understand is long-term is anything over a year. Short-term is less. Exactly. Right? So there's an advantage when you identify a property and buy it that you hold it for 12 months for more favorable capital gains treatment. But if you were able to sell it in two days and make such a huge profit in just a few months, maybe this time it made sense to pay the tax. Well, of course, we, you know, I hear you always learn something after the fact, and that's how this was with the long-term capital gains. I've never had to deal with that. But, I mean, the difference, our taxable income last year was 25%. Yeah, you're, you're doing great here. You're, you're absolutely doing great. James, again, continued success because you and your wife made it happen with the work you've done. Nan is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Nan. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Nan. Great. Hey, enjoy your show. I like putting your tips to good use. Oh, I'm glad. One tip you had put out there before was that uh, if I wanted to be ultra safe for online banking, to have a Chromebook dedicated just for that kind of a thing. And my question is, I, I did that. I bought a Chromebook, and I, I um, wanted to use it. But when I logged in, it asked me for my Gmail account. So I put that in there, and I saw that the behind-the-scenes setup that it was doing with a printer and that kind of a thing came from a different Chromebook I was using with that same Gmail account. So I'm wondering... Am I still being safe using that Gmail account on my, my new Chromebook? What a great question. And this was something a techie mentioned to me. His suggestion was that if you're going to use a Chromebook strictly as a financial device where you pay your bills and do your banking, brokerage, mutual fund accounts, whatever, where it's a sterile environment, no surfing, no reading email, nothing other than doing the bill pay and the other stuff like that, that you would be wise to use a separate Gmail account that you set up on that Chromebook. Is that what you're thinking of doing? That's what I'm thinking about, yeah. Well, it, are you a techie as well? Cause that, <laughs> no. Because <laughs> it never occurred to me when I got that suggestion. I was just surprised when I saw my, my printer pop up, and I was like, oh, where'd this come from? Yeah, that's why, because... You know, the whole Chrome operating system works across various devices that you sign in to Chrome. Okay. And so 
the idea of using a separate Gmail address puts you in a, a cocoon, essentially, for all those financial transactions. So I should create a new login with a new Gmail account. I think that would be a great idea. Okay. That sounds great. All right. And I love using a Chromebook. I travel with a Chromebook now. I used to travel with a MacBook Air. Ended up giving it to my son because I never use it anymore because the Chromebook is so much better for travel than using the MacBook. And then having a Chromebook is an insurance policy against somebody hacking into your financial sites, financial accounts, your bank account, anything like that, seems like a really, really cheap insurance policy. And Nan, love your thinking about having the separate account. Welcome to the Clark Howard Show, where you learn ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. I want to talk about something that can be a hideous ripoff, and that is when you buy a cell phone, getting tricked into pressured into or doing it to yourself where you sign up for the hideous insurance coverage that is pushed by the cell phone carriers. Let me tell you, it is trash, 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 garbage, those protection plans for cell phones that you end up paying big money every month may not feel like big money. Think about it month after month, year after year on the phones you buy for coverage. And then what is the coverage? Usually you'll have a significant deductible. And then on top of it, you're given usually a reconditioned phone to replace your phone that croaked or was stolen, if it in fact does even cover stolen. Apple Care is a very expensive way for you to protect Apple products. Extremely expensive. If you want to buy a coverage thing, look at third-party things like Square Trade if you want to do that. As far as your cell phone, I know it's not sleek. I know it's not elegant. But get one of those Destructo cases, military-grade cases. I have one on my phone that takes away all the beauty of my phone. But when I was doing a segment about phones breaking on TV. I Live on TV, I threw my phone across the room. And I was like, I wonder how good an idea that was. But not a scratch on it, not a problem, because I was making the point that the cases you can buy give you the protection you're actually looking for, not against theft. But you know, my phone that was a beautiful, sleek phone now looks ugly, looks pretty homely ugly, so I'm not likely to be somebody that the criminals are going to be targeting to grab from anyway if you're worried about theft insurance. But if you do want coverage, i got another way for you to do it that's free. Okay, a lot of credit cards now as a differentiator will cover your cell phone repairs or theft as part of you paying your cell phone bill using that credit card. And then they cover the handsets that come under that plan. And then you're not paying at all. So anything other than buying a cell phone plan, cell phone protection plan or whatever they call it, 
from the cell phone carrier, it's all uphill from there because you might as well just take your money and throw it out in the street buying one of those ripoff plans from Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, or Sprint. Don't do it. Stephanie's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Stephanie. Hello, Clark. You got a question for me about Social Security. Yes, I do. I'm 62, and of course I'm eligible to begin drawing. I wouldn't be necessarily dependent on my Social Security. My husband is still employed, thankfully. But we're wondering if we should use that little amount that we would get per month to begin paying down some debt that we have, including the mortgage on our residence, and then we own some farm property that we have a small, I mean, like $65,000 a mortgage on that. So that's my question. So as far as taking Social Security at 62, Mm -hmm. my first answer at best is always maybe, but usually no. Okay. Because the increase in benefit that you receive for every year you delay taking Social Security is so large. And if you're not in a position that you need the money, it might be nice, but you don't mm-hmm. need the money. Mm-hmm. Later in life, you might need the money. And a much larger monthly check late in later years may be much more valuable for you. So, but, uh, but I'm giving you a general answer. Can I help you drill down to exactly specific for your and your husband's situation? Okay, yes. That would be helpful. For $40, you can buy a software package that will run your and your husband's exact circumstance and help you figure out the ideal moment for you to start receiving Social Security. All right. It's called Maximize My Social Security. It's a dot com. And okay, so, and it's not abbreviated to SS, it's socialsecurity.com? F- fully spelled out, MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com. Okay. And you pay them the $40, and then you're able to run the analysis deeply into your exact uh, scenario, mm-hmm. and it will guide you on whether you should delay. Now, again, most people should delay, very few people do. And maybe you'll be someone that you're not most people, and maybe you are better off taking it at 62. But generally, the later, the better. So this software package will take all of our financial info? No, it will only take certain facets of what you have paid into Social Security, what your earnings would be from it now, what it would be if you waited, and it will help you figure out the optimum moment to take Social Security. It cannot take the variables of, well, we have this mortgage and we owe this on it and we have this, but it will tell you that, you know, the the debts you have that you might accelerate paying off on and things like that, it's actually um, irrelevant to the calculation of when would be the optimal moment financially to take Social Security. Okay. All right. Because I see the difference. I mean, mine is like $758 a month if I take it now, and then if I wait until full retirement, it's another $200 a month. So think about how much additional that is per month, and then your increases from cost of living are based for the rest of your life on that higher initial amount you would get waiting four years. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So uh, there are people who get very upset with me on this saying, well, what happens if Stephanie doesn't live as long as I'm calculating? Because, you know, Uh I'm just going with actuarial and unless there's a history of people not living very long in your family, it would automatically generally make sense to wait. Right. Okay. But don't go automatically generally. Get very specific and $40 is no money for you to be able to make the right decision. Okay. Very good. I thank you. Sure. Best to you. Mike is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Mike. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Mike. You are thinking of leaving the United States of America. Well, you know, every once in a while I come across articles about people that can retire overseas for dollars a day, and I see pictures of them on the beach, and it's looking really good. I'm wondering, is that realistic? Is that a good idea? Uh, Well, it, it is realistic. If it's a good idea, depends on you and what you might enjoy. And what I've recommended to people who've considered leaving the United States in retirement to have a much lower cost of living and be able to take the money you have and live like a king, that you go live in a place first as a renter and see if, first of all, you like the idea of living elsewhere in the United States, learn the lay of the land there, and maybe go live somewhere for a minimum three months, but probably more like six months, and see if it's what you want. One of the staffers on the show has relatives that went to live in a tropical locale, and it had always been their dream, and within a year, they were already back stateside. It was not for them. And then others will go. I have relatives who moved long ago to the country of Panama and would never leave. They love it so much. Yeah, Panama was on the top of my list because, you know, English is spoken widely and they use the dollar, so it wouldn't be that big of a transaction, you know, transition from the U.S. to Panama. And medical care is supposed to be very good in Panama, and access to services is very good there. So it's become a very, very popular place, although the, the cost of living in Panama has gone up as Panama's per capita income has risen and it's become a much wealthier place for Panamanians than it used to be. So realistically, how much does it actually cost to live in places like this? Well, it all depends on how deep into the third world you go, how much cheaper your living costs will be. And so it it's a varied picture. You know, there are Americans, particularly on the West Coast, who will go to an Asian destination to live. There are uh, ironically enough, there are a lot of Americans, Canadians, and Australians who are living in Vietnam now in retirement or semi-retirement because it's so inexpensive to live in Vietnam. There are these magnificent resorts there you can live at that are very, very cheap. And so th- this is this is something people do. It's just a matter of something fitting your lifestyle. I almost would have you consider going one place like Panama for three months or six months and then maybe go try somewhere else for three months or six months. Don't look at it as you need to just go somewhere and put down deep roots because you just don't know if you're going to adapt to it. Right. Is there a good resource to research these different places? There are a lot of bloggers that write specifically about 
expat living and retirement. I don't know that I have one in particular that I can recommend or advise. But if you you mentioned Panama, if you start looking at what people are blogging about living in Panama as a retiree, as an example, or any other country, you'll really start getting a feel. Like a lot of places, the um, the uh, the laws on property ownership are a real trap for you as an American. And there are countries where you would really only want to ever be a renter, not a property owner. And a lot of Americans will get in too deep where they'll buy a place and because of differing laws on property rights, private property rights, you end up throwing money down a rat hole because you really don't own the place. You might have a land lease or, you know, a long-term lease that you paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for. So this is an area you you start slowly and you you only get further in as you become more knowledgeable about the place you are and more comfortable with it being where you want to be. And on TripAdvisor, there are a lot of forums on TripAdvisor that where people are posting about living in various places as an expat. Okay. Is it a hassle to apply for Social Security living in another country? Oh, no. I mean, yo, this is so common. This is such a common activity that people do that it is not a hard thing for you to continue benefits that you have earned in a foreign country. The Some of the bigger issues are, obviously, we alluded to it earlier, are the questions of medical care. But again, how your dollar stretches living as a retiree in a foreign land, it's just amazing. Do you know the other place people are living right now that may surprise you, Mike? It's a big problem for the cruise industry that people are living in retirement on cruise ships. Oh, never heard of that. Yeah, so there are people that love doing that and live on cruise ships year-round. And it's a very controversial thing within the managements of the cruise companies, people doing it and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing for them. But it's cheaper for many retirees to live on cruise ships than it is to live on land in the United States. Deborah's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Deborah, you want to talk about college students and credit? Yes. Yes, I have a 21-year-old daughter who is interested in getting a credit card of her own or in figuring out a way to start building her credit. And I wondered how it's best for her to do that and also how she knows what card is a good card to take on. That's a great question. Just about every major issuer has a college student credit card program that's designed for college students that are full-time students when they reach their 21st birthday. And those card programs generally are no annual fee cards but have very high interest rates if you don't pay the balance Uh in full. Uh So if she pays whatever she charges on the card, pays the balance in full, then the cards are all fine. The problem comes if she ends up uh, charging what she can't afford to pay 
and then she'll pay sky-high interest rates. Uh-huh. If you ask me, though, what are the best of the college student cards, they're from credit unions. Has, has she joined a credit union where she's at college or back she home? She actually belongs to the one that I belong to. She has a checking account with a debit there. Well, then that's perfect. She's already an existing member of that credit union, and if the credit union is of any size at all, they'll have a college student credit card program. Okay, okay. And is that the best way for her to develop a credit history? A hundred percent. The easiest glide path to anyone establishing credit today is with a credit card. Okay, And so what's so unique for college students is that college students are the only group I know of that the normal rules for applying for credit are waived. Because college students, Uh uh, financial institutions want the college students because the first or second credit card that somebody gets, they stay loyal to often for decades. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's Great. why, and college students tend to be a very profitable market because the first thing I said to you, that they tend to run balances and then have to pay interest at very high rates, added in that uh, the banks have seen through experience that if a college student gets in way over his or her head, the parents most often bail them out. So the risk level is very low to the banks and the reward very high. Okay, great. So in giving advice to her, as she uses her this checking account with a debit, the way I've always tracked my expenses is with a check register. For her, that seems really obsolete to have paper and pen and carry that around. How I'm, with yeah, I'm with her. Okay. Mint, uh-huh. uh, M-I-N-T. M-I-N-T. Mint either is an app or is a dot-com is a much more efficient way to track spending if someone is electronically oriented. Oh, okay. So her checking account and her debits, she can track there. Completely, unless a small number of financial institutions are threatened by Mint maybe stealing their customers and they've not cooperated with Mint. But for the most part, Mint is a beautiful platform to track expenses and also to help you budget. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. I want you to know that I appreciate so much that you've just tuned into our podcast, that you had faith in the information and advice you get. You want more information from us? One of the best ways to get Clark Smart is with our free newsletters, Clark Daily, Clark Deals, and Travel Escape. Sign up now. You'll be able to unsubscribe at any time if you think I'm wasting your time. Go to clark.com newsletters.